Hello, everyone. Welcome to Tuesdays with Townsend, a podcast from Rivertown Church in Brattleboro, Vermont. My name's Ben Whittinghill. It's my privilege to sit down each week with one of my fellow pastors and dear friends, David Townsend, to discuss questions of faith, challenging issues, and sometimes random topics. Our goal is to serve you as you seek to follow Jesus faithfully in our post-Christian world. Thanks so much for joining us. All right, David, another Tuesday with my man. How you doing? I'm good. I'm good. It is another Tuesday, and uh, it's beautiful out, and uh, got the windows open, so it's nice. Even in my office, it's nice to see the trees finally uh, having some leaves and uh, the sun shining. It's a nice day. Okay, so we're going to dive into the question of this concept of morality, where it even comes from and who has it. But first, just on a personal note, um, what we don't know when life is going back to some semblance of getting together with people. What do you miss most? How's your family doing? What What do you miss most about um, life pre-pandemic? And how are you guys coping with life in lockdown? Well, um, I think... I can speak Yawn. personally. Oh, not get enough sleep for sure. Yeah, yeah. I can speak personally that um, we certainly miss seeing folks in person. You know, there's something to be said about gathering with others in person. And while Zoom calls are really helpful and a blessing, and it's amazing that we have technology to assist us in staying connected, it certainly isn't the same. You know, it's kind of like a shadow, uh, whereas being in person is really the substance. And, um, so that's, that's certainly what we're probably longing for most. And, and it could be anything. It can be like the gathering of the body of believers, but also just simple things like going out to a restaurant, you know, and being around people. Um, because now if you go to the grocery store or run an errand or whatever, uh, you're kind of looking to others critically, like, don't, you know, don't get in my bubble, you know, it feels so weird. It feels so weird. And some introverts are living their dream right now. Sure. It's like, yeah, absolutely. Like nobody's trying to talk to me. Nobody's trying to touch me. It's amazing. I even can wear a mask so nobody even can see my facial expressions. Like we're set, you know? Right. And it, there was this weird shift where you go into a store and you felt self-conscious wearing a mask to feeling self-conscious when you don't wear a mask. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's yeah. a weird time, man. I went into a store yesterday unplanned. It was last minute on my way home from work. And, uh, and I had a mask in my lunchbox, but I didn't really think about putting it on. And I, I felt like I was being judged in, oh, in judge for the sure. grocery store because yeah. I didn't have my mask on. And yeah, so. <laughs> that's almost as bad. I may be worse than going down a one-way in a grocery store aisle. The wrong right, way. right. Yeah. Weird times, man. Um, yeah. So let's dive into today's content. And um, so... This has always been a question of mine, I think, um, to kind of throw into a secular worldview. Where does the concept of morality even come from? Because it's not a strange concept to the entire world. Every single person in the world has some kind of belief about whether there is a morality or not and if so what that morality is right so I, how do you how do you work through that and and what do you 
what are your thoughts on how that's developed? And are there some people who don't believe that it's, there's a sense of right and wrong or? Sure. Yeah. So yeah, there are certainly people who, um, I think have, have determined much of this comes from a, a, a sub, a, like a, a sub genre of philosophy called existentialism in which, um, you question, like, what does it mean to exist? What is purpose? And th- this is uniquely tied to morality because uh, often people, perf- like, they function in a particular way. They act a certain way. They they live in respect towards others, you know, in a certain way because of a felt purpose or, um, you know, a felt worth or value in their life and towards others. And in existentialism, you see... Um, it really kind of blossomed in the early uh, 1900s with two people, Sartre, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. They were both French gentlemen who um, basically were were looking at what does it mean to exist and what is the, the value or the worth of existence and um, determined that really a, a person ought to be free. And um, they didn't simply just mean free from like the bondage of tyranny or a government or anything like that, but philosophically free. And the only way to be free is to free yourself from religion and also the the restriction of morality, uh, because they were arguing that um, existence precedes essence, meaning our existence is meaningless. And there is no real meaning behind why the world exists and why humans are here and what we're doing here. And so we define our own essence by what we pursue in life. So, uh, whereas, you know, if, if you were a, a wood, if you were a carpenter, a craftsman, and you were making a chair, you had in mind what you were making the chair for and how you were shaping it and what you were doing it. And they would say, no, 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 that's all uh, not true. We have projected that onto our experience, but it's not actually philosophically true. And that something can just exist and then an essence can be attributed to it. So, yeah, there are schools of thought that would say uh, there is no such thing as morality. It is what we make it to be. But um, that's not, though, to pigeonhole anyone who would be agnostic or atheistic in saying that all, you know, uh, irreligious people are, are immoral because I believe that scripturally we see like evidence that the law of God is written on people's hearts and how much kind of clarity they see to that law and what, what we would call their conscience can vary. But um, there are many irreligious people who are incredibly moral by Judeo-Christian standards. In fact, there are probably some atheists that are more moral, right, or more morally upright than some Christians. Um, and so when we, we kind of start this argument or this, this kind of conversation, you have to, I think the first thing to say is that for Christianity, the point of Christianity is not to make moral people, you know, it's not so that we would be good people, but that we would find the only one who is good and his name is Jesus. And so that, that's gotta be the defining characteristic of, of Christianity. It's not just a moral system. However, we can talk about the morals of the world in different worldviews. And I think I would say to sort of nuance that for Christianity, that God's goal is not to create independently moral people. Not you like in the sense that you know that term independently wealthy. You're not relying right. on anybody else, but 
he he doesn't make anybody independently anything. The more we grow as Christians, the more dependent we become, and that creates a deeper and truer morality, which is jumping way ahead. But sure. I think that there is, in in sense of um, like, he is after making people that are deep down truly good, but the goodness is sourced in the righteousness of Jesus and not in right. themselves. So yeah, the, the the question is, man, you just now said it's possible for atheists, for agnostics, for people of other religions to be, to have a morality that they may not even define as such, right? That because right. they they've are committed to a sort of an amoralism that there's not a moralism. So, how do you re- respond to somebody? that has that philosophy that you described from Satra and Camus, is that right? Yes. If, if they're espousing that belief system, how do you respond to that as a Christian? Well, I think you can easily ask questions that would um, like beg a response from them and that would um, kind of force someone to go to the the logical end of their thinking because if someone really believed or held to like the existentialist convictions of say Sartre there's no they, they actually they, they can't care I mean I, they they I think would be okay with violence and things here's why Sartre and Camus uh, this is, you know, a little rabbit hole, but very briefly, they disagreed on how to, to like, um, purchase freedom for the proletariat, like the working class. And Satra was convinced that violence was necessary for freedom, whereas Camus um, did not think that was true and, and thought that there was a better way, like a more democratic way to produce freedom. And so uh, they split as friends, they were, they were best friends for a time and they split, um, you know, around the late forties, fifties because of that. And there, they had, they had same kind of operating principles, but it led them to two different places. And so there's inconsistency even with, with an existentialism. Right? Is it yeah. inconsistency in that? Because Camus would probably uphold his as a more preferable form than right. Satra's because it's less violent. <laughs> right. But, you know, Satra would easily justify the means because of the end. And so... Oh, 100%. I'm just saying, like, right, it's crazy right. that, that you know, you have, like, this divergent thought because one is morally superior than the other. Like, you have to draw right. a line somewhere. And everybody right. has to draw a line. Right. And so then the question is, where do these convictions lie? Because if the goal is to is utmost freedom, how then can we have convictions that would then define or restrict said freedom that are based on morals? Where does that come from? And so uh, in some way, I do think Satra had, he was more honest, intellectually honest in where um, his, you know, existentialist thinking took him more so than Camus. And, you know, some might disagree with me. There's experts, scholars uh, over these philosophers, and, and that's okay. I'm, I don't claim to be an expert over them. But um, the uh, but the point being is that what's defining our operating convictions. And so um, we would, as Christians partic- in particular, right, we are aiming for moral 
uprightness because we're claiming that there is a God in heaven and he is holy and righteous and perfect and outside of time and space. So he is eternally holy, eternally merciful, eternally loving, eternally just, you know, eternally righteous. righteous. And so it, it, it would be a contradiction to participate in, in communion with him and fellowship with him and not be like him, which is why we see over and over again in the scriptures that God calls us to be holy like he is holy per your sermon this past Sunday. So uh, there is a basis for morality within the Christian worldview, but the point is not the morality. The point right. is to know God, you know, and that's well, the difference. And, and the God, the, there's only one God. Right. And all morality sources from his character. It's how we have even, even if people believe on him or not, the presence of his attributes and, and character in what he's made has caused people to come to the conclusions of right or wrong if they're in keeping with his character that they have, right? So I've, I'm, I'm, I'll be the, since I'm the only one that gets to um, ask questions to you right now, and I think I could verbalize <laughs> what other people might ask. Uh, in this is kind of a yes or no, so you have to extrapolate, but I have wondered, okay, so if there is, um, if there was no God and there was just evolutionary theory and there was a series of natural selection and survival of the fittest, which is the predominant view where we live in, in the majority of, I don't know, um, academic circles in the west yeah Yeah. so does it does it not um are there not morals that are almost universally agreed upon i'm not saying that there's not pockets of people that don't agree with these but aren't there morals that people agree upon that don't fit in with that theory like if survival of the fittest was a thing then where would love and self-sacrifice and humility come into play? How would they be espoused as, as, as sound morals? And don't people agree on those? I mean, right. A lot of there, things. Where does that come those from? things are irrelevant in a worldview such as that. I'm not saying they don't give personal meaning because I think even from our perspective, to be honest with the situation, they certainly add value and like some type of meaning but they they don't they're not like eternally they're they're not something that i think can be an operating principle like that has this universal uh like law unto itself because with something like uh atheistic naturalism right which we would call like darwinian evolution uh you're saying that all of this is a byproduct of the Big Bang and of certain cogs being put in motion, and this is just the end result. It's all been an accident, right? It's all just been um, basically luck, um, if you have, you know, as you have it. So, no, those things like love and mercy and and compassion and niceness, kindness, they're they're largely irrelevant. And certainly, people live or attempt to live by those things, but. In order to be intellectually honest, you have to go to the end of the belief to which you hold. And ultimately speaking, those things are irrelevant in a atheistic naturalist view. 
And so I would questions I would question people's honesty about why they uphold certain values and also uphold like a, a life that has totally been dictated by chance from you know uh, some atoms colliding into one another. The two, ultimately speaking, are uh, contradictory. Now they don't, they don't uh, touch. There's no point in the future with she's right. Like, right, it won't happen. Right, there's no basis. And then even stuff like karma or those kind of ideas. I mean, that's that's pretty fanciful, if you ask me. Like, who who what cognizant being in the universe is dictating or judging actions of people so that then there's karmic retribution, right? Who's doing that? And so it and so and then also with the growth rate of population and stuff. It makes no sense. Reincarnation makes no no sense, um, like mathematically. But furthermore, uh, you know, no one ascribes moral values or like objective morality to animals. So say you know you got put into because I just I, I want to be fair to like some to the moralities of other worldviews, right? Not just um, you know naturalistic atheism or atheistic naturalism. But um, and so like none of this stuff really is it doesn't hold water, you know, it, it has no real weight to it when you think about it critically, because, um, like I said, it, it, there, who, who is the being that determines one's fate in something like, you know, karmic retribution or, or reincarnation, or even just the simple conviction that many people hold to in the States, whether or not they, they have really considered it as this, is that they think if I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. But if you've looked critically at your life, I'm certain you've lied before, you've cheated, you've probably stole something in your lifetime, um, you know, and ultimately it's a life lived for self. And so you're getting where, into why morality is important, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess I should pause there. But then but that begs the question, then who who is the rescue? You know, where is the escape? So, right. But so pause right there for a second. I'll come back to that. and We can end with that. But we talked about uh, a couple episodes ago how, how uh, relativism with regards to truth it doesn't work right. not in the real world, right? We there's a bunch of people that can find themselves in a debate, uh, and you keep everything on paper, and you can get really deep into this relativity. But as soon as you bring it into the real world, it doesn't work anymore. Um, so we kind of like philosophy and religion, we're able to kind of talk all ethereal, but as soon as you start banking or driving, it doesn't, it doesn't work anymore. Right. So why does moral relativity not work? Because this is the idea of the day, right? Where, um, you know, previously in sort of when the postmodern um, era kind of first made its entrance, the argument was you have no claim on truth it's still around. You have, David, you have no claim on truth. What's true for you is true for you. And what's true for me is true for me. It's, that is relativity with regards to truth. Now the argument is not just what is true, but what is right. And, yeah. and so it's what's, what's right for you is right for you and what's right for me. And now the tables are being turned even more where it's who are you to say that what you believe is right I'm saying what I believe is right. And now we're saying you're wrong and you can't hold those beliefs anymore, David. Right. You, and, and so there's been this progression of 
moral relativity in in it's progressed into a a moral hierarchy that's being created in society right now. So this question is pressing. Yeah. Why doesn't moral relativity work? And how do you respond to somebody who would make a claim that either two parts, so there's three questions. Why does moral relativity not work? How do you deal with people who would say, Hey, that's awesome. That's what's right for you, but this is what's right for me. And even beyond that, how do you deal with people that say, Hey, the Christian religion is full of outdated, archaic morals that are actually bigoted and need to get upgraded. Yeah. So let's, let's answer the first question on two levels. First on the personal level, um, as far as like what moral relativity, like why it, it can't stand. Well, as we've stated in a few episodes ago, it, you have no stake on any truth claims if you hold to moral relativity because nothing you say is grounded or rooted in something that's absolute, right? So the Christian worldview would say, and what we hold to as people who believe in Jesus is that there is moral absolutism, meaning there are absolute truths that are eternal because they're grounded and rooted in the character and nature of God. Whereas moral relativity says that as things ebb and flow, cultures, peoples, times, circumstances, morality ebbs and flows with it. It is relative and it's largely, you know, rooted in someone's perspective. So the reason that doesn't work is because our entire livelihood is is based on truth claims. And there's, a, I think, an innate desire for every person to be rooted into something for their life to actually have meaning and purpose. I don't think, I mean, you might have some, some philosophers that have gone to that conclusion, but on a, on a level, on a heart level for most people, they want to see themselves in the world as having a purpose. And that, that's more of an identity question, but it, it plays out in morality because um, either it will drive you to be moral, but then it won't be as, um, as uh, you know, like satisfying as you think it would be because the end, your, your end is just morality. But for the, for the morally relative, um, you have no say. Like there is no, nothing you can, you can do uh, that would like change, that would speak into a situation or um, furthermore, it, it, like you can't question injustice. You can't question the, the hand that you've been dealt, you know, or anything like that. And then that ultimately puts us right into the social perspective, right? This, this civil uh, perspective, because there can't be laws. The constitution is meaningless. In fact, in some regards, um, uh, like some of our, like natural law is even, is even questionable because, we're saying that these things are are true and absolute and, and eternal, right? Natural laws like gravity and stuff. And I'm not saying that those things are inherently moral, but rather they're a, they're a parallel to what we're saying is moral, right? And, and that these are things that we can stake our lives on, right? I know that murder is wrong, you know? Yeah, morals find their roots in truth, Absolutely. They're connected together. So you the every all of the conversation around morality has to drive people back down to the underlying questions of what is true. 
Right. The biggest problem with moral relativity is it doesn't tell the truth about what's what the universe, what is true in the universe, what is what's actually real. Yeah, it it purports that it is true that nothing is true, and therein lies the contradiction. You know, right. um, and I think because our whole system of of life, right, um, from the cosmoses, from the cosmos to government to civilization, functions on principles of truth and uh, things that we know to be true, and we can count on them to be true. And from there, certainly that that adds into our moral lives. And so uh, what was the second question? So how do you respond to somebody who says, David, I'm so glad you have that set of morals, those beliefs, and that's good for you. Sure. But I've got my own set of morality. Like I've got my own, they wouldn't phrase it like that, right? But yeah. In real conversations, it's like, I'm so glad you've found something that gives you meaning um, or that that may be what you believe. I'll add that into my pantheon of mm-hmm. options that's good for you, but I'm over here. Right. I would probably just ask questions that I, I don't think you can give like a, a one sentence answer to that. You really should just talk with a person and see what where they're coming from. I, I think if you're... And, and when I say being critical, I don't mean just of others, but even of your own beliefs, right? It's important for us to introspect, right, and, and really know why we believe what we believe, which is part of why we're doing this series. And so uh, I would simply ask questions, well, who told you it was wrong to steal, right, if they believe that? Um, they might not. <laughs> and, uh, but if they believe that murder is wrong, who, who taught you that and why do you believe it? And those kind of questions will have to come to an end, right? They, they lead somewhere. Right. And eventually it leads to a person saying, I don't know. And so then, then th- therein lies the question, well, then you, how do you know anything that you know is true if you don't know where it came from? I think something you said is really important that these conversations happen best and need to happen in the context of a relationship that's real. Right. That, that if, if the point is, I got to get equipped so I can win an argument, then we miss it, right? If you, if you are right in the wrong way, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, you can be right in the wrong way. Uh, You can be wrong in the right way. That's, that's rich with love and, and gentleness. And so I think our aim is to, to pursue truth and to guide others there by you know, what you just now said, ask thought provoking questions, but with a winsome gentleness, that's not contentious or arrogant. Um, Yeah. That'll turn people away from even blind. They'll give them blurry vision to even hear what you're saying, you know? Absolutely. There is a, um, there's a a really neat anecdote from the early church. Um, In the one hundreds, um, the the church the, the Christian church had not yet kind of risen to prominence, and that only happened because of Constantine. So m- much of the church was in the shadows, and uh, you know, really, I think that's part of God's design to be on the fringes. But uh, many of the citizens of Rome questioned them and considered them atheists because they didn't worship the gods of the pantheon, 
and they called Christians atheists. In fact, Christians have were the first people to ever be called atheists. So that's somewhat that could also be our random fact, but I do have another one. Yeah. And so um <laughs> and and they marveled at their love for one another and their love for their neighbors. Hmm. And so the apologetic of the early church was love. Yeah. Um, they often didn't have the answer, but they they knew whom they belonged to, that is Jesus, and they knew his will and his ways, and it led them to love their neighbor as themselves. So even if we even if we don't have an answer or really don't even know why wh- what is true is true, you know, there's things in the Bible that cause me to ask why, you know, and I don't know sometimes, but uh, or a lot of times, but the but the end of the day, I, I trust that Jesus is who he says he is, and his ways are gentle and meek, and he came in humility, and he calls us to do the same. And so uh, while there are things that uh, we want to hold to with a closed hand, right, some of those being like the character and the nature of God and what that produces in, uh, in us and in, uh, in, in our morals, at the end of the day, love is, you know, our primary concern. So, so I'm like, I'm gonna give you this option. I think that we probably need to save it for next time. That third question, because it's so big. I think it could be a whole second half of this conversation. So I want to pose it and then maybe we park it for next time. Give you a week to think on it a little bit. <laughs> um, but there is a, a change in the conversation, a change in, in not just, okay, well, that's fine for you. And what's, and then this is fine for me. There's a shift uh, a change in what we have always known as sort of a religious freedom that is saying, Hey, when you're, when what you believe David infringes upon what I believe and who I believe that I am. Right. then you're no longer entitled to those beliefs. And when you say, Hey, the, the ultimate apologetic is love. How in a, in a relative society, then if love is a moral that is universally held to how do we define that love and how can we, how can we operate? How do we know what love really is? If people are saying, well, what you believe is unloving towards me and we'll say, well, what you believe is unloving towards me. And if, if there's is a truth in an age of relativity and there is a set of morals rooted in that truth, how do we arrive at that? How do we have that conversation? And I don't know, you, you want to say that for next time or you want to dive in? Yeah, yeah. I think I think I can say one thing to it, but we should really pursue that conversation next week. And the one thing is this is kind of the little little taste, is teaser. that we yeah, the teaser. We we cannot define love using our own terms or our own experiences. Yeah. Uh, because that is moral relativism. And so our love must be rooted in a truth. And so, you know, here's the answer that will be elaborated on next week. The the Bible defines for us what is love. Yeah. And the God behind the Bible. Right. And, well, and, yeah. and I think, <laughs> I mean, obviously, but I'm just saying even, and I think that what we can dive into next week too, I mean, any kind of, any kind of getting offended, which is the whole nature of our world that we live in is everybody's just offended at everything right but the whole kind of behind the scenes of getting offended is that there is a right and a wrong and i've been wronged right 
So there, there's going to be some divergence in, in worldview. And there's, we're going to see some mutual exclusivity. There's, a, there's some things that can't be true together at the same time. Right. Yeah. And well, again, we can talk more, but there's a lot of um, hypocritical uh, thinking in in regards to love and what is right because again you're you're dead on in saying that the conversation is moving from what is true to what is right because people are wanting to justify themselves in how they you know how they live and so um that's the day and age in which we live and it's totally rooted in that relativity You'll, you'll hear people say, love is my religion. Love is the only binding law. So then the question for next time is, how do we know what love is? So give me a random fact. Okay, so the English phrases willy-nilly and hobnob are actually remnants from Old English, and they were used as double negatives. And so we don't really use double negatives anymore. Uh, and most, you know, we don't even use those phrases in their original meaning, but willy nilly and hobnob are from old English. What do they mean? Uh, they're double negative. So yeah, each, they're, I did, the, you the, did not look it up. One's a positive verb and one's a negative verb. I don't remember specifically. I, I, I knew it last week probably, but, uh, <laughs> I don't remember exactly so, what. It's a willy nilly fact. Yes. There we go. All right. All right, man. Thanks for your time. See you next week. All right. See you.